Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen. And today we're recording in studio in Bethesda, Maryland with Jim Massey. For more than 15 years, Jim's governance and transparency expertise transformed AstraZeneca's sustainability program, driving an entrepreneurial culture with the agility to meet business demands and stakeholder expectations. His work led to the company's recognition as one of the world's 100 most sustainable companies for the past three years. Today, he's an executive at Xilabs. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Caitlin. It's wonderful to be here in person. I know. I'm so glad we were able to make this work out. It's a very cold day in the D.C. area, <laughs> but thankfully the rain held off yes. for the drive-in. So really happy to have you. And a lot of folks will hear your bio and think, oh, cool, we're going to hear about AstraZeneca Sustainability Program or Xilabs' program. Um, and we are going to talk a little bit about that. But the one of the really interesting things that we talked about in our prep and learned about you is that you've actually created or coined uh, the trust model as sort of an antidote to a lot of the confusion about ESG ratings, rankings, the sort of, let's say the controversial parts of ESG. And I thought it was really striking and a really helpful way to cut through a lot of the noise about this to get down to what what it's really about. So I'm so excited to hear more from you. And let's start there with what is the trust model? We'll talk a little bit about how you came up with this or how um, what what you saw the need for in the market, broadly speaking. So let's start with that. That's great, Caitlin. Yeah. I think for me, I'll start with the model itself. And trust is fundamental. It's hardwired in our brains, right? There's this concept of fight or flight that is as basic as goes you know, as far back in human history as possible. If someone doesn't feel safe, they're going to go in for the fight or they'll take off. And so as I have been working throughout my career, I, I realize I'm a behavioralist. I have been studying human behavior in various industries since childhood. I started off in politics. I was a consumer marketer, and then I was in ethics and compliance. And then the last eight years, I've been in the sustainability field. And time and time again, what I kept encountering is that we as people, if we don't trust one another, it's hard to get anything done. And I am, I am happy to talk about my work, but in particular, it's the work that has helped me create this. Mm -hmm. Time and time again, I kept coming back to the, the basic aspects of what is trust. And for me, trust is this perfect little circle that has three individual pieces of pie. <laughs> it's, am I capable? Do I care? And will I do what I say I will? I've boiled that down to can, care, do. And it gives individuals a chance when they're in any circumstance to quickly have a model or some concept to run through to help identify. A, a key tenet I believe in is there's never anything wrong, just something missing. And so if you have can, care, do in your back pocket, you can identify what's missing. Is it my capability or someone else's capability that I don't trust? Is it that I'm not convinced they care about me or they don't believe I have their best interest at heart? And then finally, are both of us just a lot of talk with no action? Mm. So it, it lets you start to cut through the white noise that we have all around us to figure out what's missing in the basics of trust. And then the other key aspect is the model of trust in action. 
where and how does that take shape? And I can talk a little bit more about that. The model is simple, it's can care do. And I view trust as the light that shines through the transparency of self, team, and systems, the three lenses through which we as humans create systems in which we can interact with one another. I, I call those systems the built system, and I lovingly shorten that to the BS <laughs> because I believe it's the BS that keeps us from being able to mm. build trust and, and, and have trust in action itself. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners are probably already having wheels turning about this. Oh my gosh, that makes sense. But I think that for me, it's so striking from an ESG standpoint because there've been a lot of talk and, you know, on social, on LinkedIn, on people that are trying to figure out kind of what's missing. We all know that ESG is good for business. Well, most of us know and understand that there are linkages between how we manage ES and G related issues that are material to a company and, and company performance and company value. We know that, but somewhere along the way in the discussions about processes of trying to measure and report out on those, we've seen sort of a breakdown of trust actually in some of those systems because of the results, right? Because it all depends on, you know, what we're measuring. And each of these ratings and rankers are proprietary and they're not always transparent about what they're measuring and how so-and-so got on the list or how so-and-so was removed from the list, et cetera, et cetera. So I think your motto really takes it back to the fundamentals of, you know, do we trust this company? Do we trust that this company is going to do what they say they're going to do? Do we trust that they have our best interests at heart? Right? So I think it's within the ESG conversation context, this is just really, really helpful to kind of cut through all of the politics about it and just say, yes. is this a trustworthy company that I want to do business with, that I want to spend my dollars with as a consumer? So that to me is, is really, really helpful, kind of getting it back down to basics. Yeah. And Caitlin, one of the things that I find is I came into the ESG sustainability space in 2015 and ESG was first coined, in, I think, in 2004. The UN had a program, mm -hmm. um, Who Cares Wins, was the initiative. Mm -hmm. And it was in that white paper and conference that ESG really came out. So to me, I feel like a newbie to ESG. But like you were saying, it's gone mainstream. And so what so many view as ESG today, I'm an old timer <laughs> and it's, it's a juxtaposition that I always struggle with. I've, I've quickly learned there are no experts in the space. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm trying to help people understand. I believe ESG was the first framework through which we could communicate that which is most important, why we care, why we think we can address it and how we're going to get it done. And then along the road, people started thinking about it, ESG is the backbone of stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's gotten so convoluted, I'm trying to reverse it all and just get rid of the lingo and just say, do we trust people? Do we trust one another in these systems? We are trying to create sense out of the chaos. Yeah. yeah. And, and that for me is call it whatever you want. You right. know, but can care do is the basics. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that helped me is as I was learning about the sustainable development goals and as a behavioralist and understanding that we as humans try to 
create sense out of chaos, I started to see the SDGs not as targets or just language, but systems. Mm. And those are the systems of education, of institutional systems we would call government or religion. And I started seeing the trend that as a whole, society started to lose trust in those systems. So no wonder sometimes that white noise at the system level can paralyze me as an individual and I'm no longer taking action because I'm waiting for regulations to catch up. I'm waiting for the system to take care of me because for so long that's what we thought the system would do. And then there have been such changes in society with technology and, and AI and you know, kind of the, the new decade, as we're calling it, that we as individuals are actually able to respond faster than business. We're able to respond faster than the regulations. So this is the exciting part about the era of the rise of the individual, seeing people take action in their local space to start making and being the change they want to see. So let's talk about how you came to develop this trust model. So you, like you said, you came into ESG relatively late in the, I guess it was corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility, kind of the past couple of decades plus in that development. So how did your career progress? How did you get to be a leader in the sustainability world? And, and then how did all of those experiences lead you to develop this trust model? So the short answer is I said yes. And as silly as that sounds, you know, when I decided politics wasn't the career I wanted, I, I could fall back on my undergrad degree in marketing. And so I, I had a wonderful career, 10 years plus for Johnson & Johnson in life sciences and healthcare in consumer marketing. And I always say that's where I really honed the skill to be able to influence human behavior. And then as life happens, my partner and wife got a job here in Washington, D.C. We need to relocate. And I started looking around for a gig. And in the interview process, they said, hey, yes, you're interviewing for a commercial role, but could you help us? Your background and your focus on individual accountability kind of fits with what we're talking about, the future of compliance and ethics. And I said, would it help me get the job? And they said, yes. And I said, I would love to help you build that. <laughs> and so I spent the next several years sitting in a field that was focused on regulations and rules. And I started to see what was happening is we were creating so many rules, we were creating the decision fatigue. I, I, I got to see the, the, the white noise creep into society where people started feeling paralyzed to take action. And they had lost trust in their own ability to make good decisions because they were being told that's too risky or that's not enough. And the legal compliance field was really coming in. And the mantra was they put no into innovation. And though it was a joke, many business people felt that way. Well, I came in and ripped that Band-Aid off. And I said, no, we are harming business and we're, we're hurting innovation. And so I went back to the basic behaviors and we crowdsourced our values and the 10 behaviors we expected of each other. And I removed a lot of these old policies and I put them into the technology that enabled the business process to work. And so as I had done that, the executives at my former company, AstraZeneca, were like, this is really innovative. And we aren't having the same problems we were having with all those rules in the past. There's this new emerging space. Would you be willing to take it on? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. And so by this point, I had honed my skills in influencing human behavior for good through compliance. And then I spent the last eight years really focused on 
changing human behavior for good for not only the impact, but in the permanence. So we weren't just creating it for the quarterly results, but we were doing it long-term impact. And that for me is how I've evolved in this space. And throughout those experiences, time and time again, you can imagine a consumer marketer running compliance. People didn't trust I was capable. And then when a compliance professional, you know, I was a, a top mind in the industry recognized in 2019 for compliance. You can imagine in the ESG space, people were like, what's a compliance guy doing over here? And so time and time again, I had to keep challenging myself. Am I capable? Do I care about those I'm leading? And what actions am I, am I taking to, to give people that sense of urgency that this work requires? And so it naturally just kind of started to flow out as I was leading groups talking about can care do. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I left AstraZeneca and I was hearing leaders say they didn't know where to start, I realized they were like me. They were having the self-doubt by not trusting themselves. I think that's so many of our listeners who are handed ESG, like, hey, go figure this thing out. Or, you know, we need to figure out how to set a net zero target. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, net zero what? Net zero, <laughs> what are you talking about again? Greenhouse gas emissions, right, okay. Yep. So there so many folks are being handed these very tall orders and having to start listening to things like our podcast to figure out where to, you know, where to even begin. Yes. I love that you're an example for listeners of someone that really just, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can pivot. I can um, take everything I've learned and apply it. Um, so that's that's a, just an added bonus for this pod. Good. <laughs> and Caitlin, I'll tell you, yeah. when I first took on the environmental health and safety team, the team I took on were environmental experts and leaders. And in our first team meeting, they actually said, you in that role is a mistake for us. Ouch. And so I had to remind them at the company, we, we respect all employees. And that was really disrespectful. And I asked them to recalibrate. There was a reason I was here. And this was also the transition of subject matter expertise to generalists. The speed of change we're facing today is so fast, it's unprecedented. And that if you think you can continue to be a SME when there's so many issues we're facing and it's changing so rapidly, you've got to become more agile and you have to have clarity of path forward over certainty of path forward. And all those things are, are really lessons we have to learn, but it must be coming from a source of trusting yourself that, listen, I've gotten this far, I can surely keep going a little bit further. And so I'm not saying it's easy. And I'll have to tell you after that first meeting where they basically said, you shouldn't be in your seat, it shook me for a couple of weeks, yeah. but I had to fake it till I made it. And I also had to realize it was more about me than it was them. I had not learned the environmental protocols and practices. And so I, I didn't have the, the capability to lead the organization where I needed. But one of the things I love, Caitlin, is I was able to leverage my network. I was able to find resources and team members to help. Enough so that when I first took on the team, they were so excited because it was 2016. We had just had the Science-Based Targets Initiative recognize our environmental commitment to being one of the most progressive at the time, consistent with the Paris Agreement from 2015. When I was learning it and the team was telling me about, oh, we're going to reduce our greenhouse gas so that we only allow the heating to go to negative 1.5 degrees Celsius. Being the 
partner of a journalist and the child of an English teacher, words really matter to me. And I remember having an uneasy feeling on, so we're still, the way I translate this, we're still sinning, we're just not sinning as much. And, <laughs> and everyone was so excited. And I had that gnawing feeling, but I, I had to park that and because I didn't know why. And then once I had that information, I was able to trust I had the capability now to start showing the team, these experts on environment, that even they knew we weren't doing enough. And that was during those two years that I was able to show them that I did care about what their original interests were, that we were one of the first companies in the world to have a net zero pledge that didn't use offsets and had a commitment by 2030 for scope one and two before 2050. And then we were able to partner with SBTI to actually establish the net zero target that's out there today. And we were one of the first seven companies publicly recognized as being certified. Wow. And so I always joke that the least capable was able to leverage previous skills to come in in the leadership capacity I needed to help the team transform so that we could transform the system. And that for me is the perfect example of it was me lacking the trust. I transformed myself to do the, the latter work. And so that's how the, the trust is always that light shining through the opaque lenses of self, team, and system. And trust, when it's not existing at any of those, can't move forward, but even more so when it's not with self. Wow, that's so powerful. Mm. I think that's a really powerful lesson for all leaders. I think a lot of us, people do look to you as a leader because you have all the answers. You're supposed to have all the answers, but the truth is we no one has all the answers. And it's really about, I know how to, like you said, I know how to get the answers. I know how to leverage networks and stakeholders and leverage the experts themselves within the organization, all of that. But you have to, I wonder if that's one of the fundamental, the fundamental things that can propel folks into leadership roles is just having that trust in oneself and confidence in oneself that one can find the answers, even if they don't have them right now. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think yeah. the other thing was the humility that that brought. Mm -hmm. And that was a transformational leap for me in my leadership. Mm -hmm. It's easy, especially within organizations, to think leadership is about showing and proving you can lead yeah. by, you know, look at me. I had to learn that it wasn't. It was about the work and it was about getting the teams to move forward. And then as a result, understanding it was through my leadership I inspired that work. And so, especially as you progress up the organizational food chain, it's less about the immediate work you do and more about the work you can inspire others to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And that, that goes back to the elements of caring, mm -hmm. that often leadership is what's my title, what's my salary, what, where am I fitting in versus how am I changing something and adjusting that caring to appropriately fit leadership, the saying is a leader is only as good as those who follow. And I always am very proud that when I've moved organizations or I have progressed in other capacities, team members will come with me and they continue to support me in my network. And so I think the legacy that that gives me is I can demonstrate that I care. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a funny anecdote on caring. I'll save that for later because even okay. when you don't have caring, it may take you 10, 15 years to establish it, but you always can go back and demonstrate you, you care about someone's interests. Oh, wow. I think we do want to hear that story. <laughs>
All right. So Jim, let's switch gears back over to talk about your current role. So you are um, at Xilabs today as an executive and y'all just released your first report. What is it called again? We call it the trust report. Okay. The trust report. Okay. So this is a great example for our listeners to go and check out a company that's actually reporting um, using the trust model. Yes. to do the corporate ESG or sustainability reporting. So tell us a little bit about that and that process. Yeah, Caitlin, one of the things I, I take great pride in is I don't sit in academia. I don't sit around just thinking up theories. Like I'm I'm a practitioner and I love action. My, my mantra is action beats inaction every time. And so to have the blank slate with an organization where I can actually bring the, the thinking of who are our stakeholders, Let's figure out what our strategy is. And our ESG strategy is actually called trust for life because you know we like the, the double meaning there. We want to have our stakeholders trust for life. But as an organization in life sciences focused on eradicating serious disease, we also trust in human life as well as planetary life. And so it, the, the strategy itself can take on so many shapes. When we did our stakeholder mapping, one of the things I wanted to be sure we were doing is, and, and using this model, is where priority was never meant to be plural. And so I always like to ask, where can we as a company have our greatest impact? And for us, it was very clear it was SDG3, health and well-being, specifically 3.3 and 3.4 in infectious disease and non-communicable diseases. And that's where we, we focus. And so when you go look at our report, you're gonna see that we are capable to improve human health as our first commitment. And the goal is that we will reach a million patients by 2030. And then the second commitment we make is to create better outcomes, meaning we, we listen and we care what our stakeholders said. And we've prioritized three specific areas, people, and particularly our people in supply chain, the communities in which we operate, and then finally the planet. What is our grow green mantra? And then the final piece of do, will we walk our walk, is what we call act right now. And it's a commitment that we will prioritize, that we will be transparent, and that we will link this to pay. Hmm. And it's a pretty simple report in that there it is. And then we use GRI and SASB to, to show our operational impact and our business societal impact. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, there's a lot of detail in the back, but it's concise, three commitments, there are nine actions, and we have three targets we're trying to achieve by 2030. And wow. the thing I'm most proud of, Caitlin, is two of the commitments are actually to maintain because the other mantra we have is we have to build it right from the start. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk a little bit more about this, this piece, but so many companies are by this date, we want to achieve it. Ours is we will maintain this. We're creating it correctly the first time because we've learned from those ahead of us. And it's inexcusable to start out bad and then applaud yourself for correcting that later. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you have the chance to build it from scratch, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what's an example of that, a practical example of that within the organization? One, one that I'm most proud of is equity and specifically gender equity. So our CEO is Samantha Dew, Dr. Dew. She, she likes to just be called Samantha, um, a very humble, brilliant scientist who knew that she could have a unique opportunity and she's a major advocate of leadership. And I'll even dare say women's leadership. Mm -hmm. 
that mm -hmm. she you know doesn't discriminate she gives everyone a fair shot but what she did was quite intentional she wanted to make sure that everyone had an equal opportunity within the organization so as we have grown when i first joined the organization i i was curious what does gender equity look like in leadership and at all levels we found that there were equal number of women in role Wow. And so, right? Almost unheard of. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, brace for it. But I asked my HR colleagues, so how are we doing on pay? Mm -hmm. And they came back. And, and because of our geographies and things, we ended up doing an index. We took the average salary for the four levels we were looking, individual contributor, manager, director, VP, and above. And what we found is that we had pay equity that in those brackets, women and men were paid within 98 to 101% of the average salary for that role. Wow. And, and it was at all levels because, you know, traditionally in large organizations, which I've been a part, the pay equity was closer, the lower you were, but as you went up the ranks, yes. it was a little bit different. So now that we had leadership equity at all levels and we had pay equity at all levels, the other piece of equity that's always fascinating to me is, is it marginalized equity or is it true equity? Mm -hmm. So I started to ask, what is it we do? What are we most capable of? We are in science. So we looked at, do we have equity in leadership in STEM roles? Hmm. And we did. So I'm like, wow, you know, I just kept trying to, <laughs> you know, disprove that we had built it right from the start. And wow. so the next question was, well, do we have it in the P&L roles? <clears throat> and, and we did. P&L, profit and loss. Yes, profit yeah. and loss. P&L responsibility, just right? for anyone who isn't familiar. Go ahead. Which is heavily coveted and has traditionally been protected by white men of Western descent in major organizations. So to be at a global startup that is looking to build it right from the start and to see the leadership and the intentionality of what we had created is almost overwhelming for me. And I always say, it's not just that we have gender equity, it's that I, Jim, come to work knowing I am treated fairly, I'm paid fairly, and I have endless fair opportunities. So it's mm. not just that the women have it, I get it too. Mm. And that's an important space for me to get to thrive and operate in. Interesting. Very interesting. And I'm curious on the the how. So I know a lot of companies do do gender pay equity studies and there's usually equitizing that needs to happen. Yes. <laughs> it's not often that there's a company where there is where it's already equitable. So I'm I'm curious how folks feel about it internally, right? I mean, is this this a point of pride for the organization? Are there any interesting anecdotes about this working in this type of space that is considered quite proactively equitable across gender versus coming from a more, say, traditional company. I'm just curious if you have any any anecdotes on that. You know, for me, the one thing that I get, I would call it kind of the Zai spirit, right, is our CEO has this mantra that leadership fills the hole. And so step in and do. And that's a sense I get. I, I, I seldom hear that's not my job. Mm. And in my previous organizations that had centuries of legacy, it was, oh, well, that's not my responsibility. This is my swim lane. And so I don't know if that's the mentality of a startup or if it's because we have that equity and the collectivism that is, we're going to do this together. But that's that's the most palatable difference that I have seen. Mm. And Caitlin, the one thing I'll also add, though, 
is in my previous organization, even back in 2016, when I was taking over new teams, we were wanting to address pay equity. And as a leader who loves action, I remember thinking, so we had a goal to have pay equity by 2025. This was back in 2016. Why don't I fix that now? And so I did. In that year of performance evaluations, I started to ask and look at my data and I closed the gap. And then that allowed me to go around as a global leader when I was in town halls to say, hey, by the way, if you're wondering about this big target, bring it down to your team and ask your leaders, why don't we have pay equity? Jim has it in his team. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, let's, let's cause the action sooner because yeah. it didn't cost me anymore. I, I always had a big bucket of money for the direct reports I had. Yeah. But then once we looked and saw the discrepancies, we closed them and then we got to maintain. So that, that was a personal passion of mine that I knew I wanted to bring to the new organization, but they had already started to build it right from the start. Hmm. Wow. Really interesting. So I, I'll just direct listeners to looking at the Xilabs report. Sounds like a really interesting combination. You have both sort of the standard, the SASB and GRI type yes. of indexing, it sounds like, but the model of the report is really this, this trust model. So it sounds like a really interesting and inspiring example for those of us who work in reporting and really appreciate you coming in to talk about that. And exciting stuff. I think you have a bit of an announcement here. Yes. You want to tell your news? Yes. So we're planning on publishing my book, Trust in Action, The Leader's Guide to Act Right Now in Spring of 2023. Yay! So a lot of the words I'm putting in will be followed up with anecdotes, real life examples, and, and ways in which the listeners can, if interested, and I encourage you to, to, to read and really start to apply this. I know for me, it's been transformational. Um, when I start to self-doubt, I can quickly run through this model and realize what's missing. Mm. And I can bring it into my teams and I've brought it into the systems in which I get to operate. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm excited to share my knowledge and information and the learnings so that others don't have the same mistakes I have. Jim, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to read your book. I guess there's no link yet nope, to include, yet. but everybody be looking out for that. Um, in spring, I'll yes. just say spring of next year. And thank you all, as always, for joining us for ESG Decoded. Please let us know uh, what you think about the episode and any other topics that you'd like to hear about. We really appreciate all of our listeners and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.